This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. I'm wondering whether the tipping point for FOCO has been passed. Now, there were some big numbers. But overall, this was not a horrible, nasty, no good, very bad day of an event. Here is what has come out from the unsanctioned gathering task force. They had a news conference, began about 40 minutes ago. First line is, attendees were generally well-behaved and responsive to direction from first responders on site when asked. That's good. And we're really referring to Roughdale here. So you had a gathering of people. Now, here's maybe the concerning part of this. The estimated number of attendees on Brofdale Avenue, at its peak, 25,000. 25,000. That's a lot of people for that street. If you've ever been to that street, go to that street right now. If you're around that area, you're around the gates of Richmond, just turn on to Brofdale and just picture. 25,000 people are going to fit here. So there are still the concerns over that number of people gathering, getting emergency vehicles through. But most of them were just kind of standing around. Like I said earlier, one of the biggest deals was a chess match that somebody had set up in the middle of the street. And people were gathering around, and when a piece was taken off, they cheered. They went nuts. Yeah, okay, that's not, that's not really what I expected. Where are the flare guns and the jumping from roof to roof videos? Yeah, doesn't seem like we had that this year. The estimated number of attendees at Purple Fest, 13,000 people at its peak. Here's maybe the biggest number of all. You ready for this one? It's a zero. What's a zero? No criminal code charges were laid. None. Zero criminal code charges were laid in conjunction with this. A number of provincial offenses, they did have some arrests. So there were 14 arrests. There were 62 tickets. There were over 2,000 warnings issued. And I think the one thing that will come up is the cost of doing business here. And so you had you had an awful lot of people who were involved in keeping the peace here, whether they be from London Police Services, whether they be from other police services who were called in to help out. So that in itself is an issue. This is expensive. It's very expensive to have officers there. If you didn't have that kind of a presence, would you have seen a greater problem? That's always the risk you run, where if they scale back the presence next year, do you run the risk of people doing stupider things? You know, maybe this year was an example of what happens when you have enough of a police presence that people are saying, yeah, okay, I'm I'm just going to just going to chill, just just going to be here, just going to be with some friends, just going to chat, just going to be part of the atmosphere. Just came down here because it's what people do on this day. Got to celebrate fake homecoming. Why? Don't know. Just have to. Maybe that's it. Maybe there was enough of a a police presence to keep everybody in line. Middlesex, London, paramedic service evaluated 82 potential patients during the event. So remember, this is 82 out of 25,000. Let me get my calculator out just because I'm interested. You interested? 82 out of 25,000 is 0.003% of people that needed medical attention. 
They transported 31 to hospital, no serious injuries, and a lot of that is alcohol. This is a lot of people not knowing how to drink alcohol. Ride the wave. When someone fills up a funnel with half a Mickey, that's not for you. Don't do that. Tell them, no, 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 that's, that's, not, that's not what funnels are for. That's not, I don't know if funnels are for anything, but no, 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 we don't, we don't do that. No, you, you don't get up and do seven shots and then decide you're going to go out and drink some more. That No, no, you got to watch the shooters. So no serious injuries, a lot of alcohol concerns there. London Fire Department issued two charges under the Ontario Fire Code. There were 592 warnings, and all of those were related to overcrowding and people on roofs. So two charges and 592 warnings. Number of charges and arrests at Purple Fest, that was a 0-2. So no criminal code charges were laid on Broughtdale. There were 14 arrests, but again, no charges laid. This may have been just getting people out. So maybe that's my question, because if an event is going, eh, nobody's going to go to that. Eh, it's just, yeah, just here. nobody's going to spend a lot of time at that, and maybe the interest in Bruffdale diminishes if this is what happens. So, if you have an event and it's just eh, whatever, yeah, nothing happened. I don't think we'll go back next year. Or yeah, we we came and saw, and then went and did something more fun, whatever that is. Or are we to look and say the reason that the numbers seem to be a lot more tame this year was because there was such a police presence? Is that what it is? And I'm I'm starting to kind of lean that way, that if you have enough officers around, what is one of the biggest complaints about downtown London or downtown any city when you're dealing with crime? Well, if, if we had a greater police presence, and we do have a police presence, but if you had officers everywhere, yeah, it would be nice to have that, but we don't. But if you did, would people behave? If you're more likely to be seen... You're not going to do something wrong. If somebody's looking at you, you're not going to lean over and even break a branch off a tree. You know, you, you don't want to be seen doing that. 519-643-2222. Email Mike at 980cfpl.ca or you can tweet me at Stubbs980. Would it be the police presence that would that would keep people more in line this year because there was a hefty one? Do you think that's what did it? Or is this thing just starting to kind of maybe die down just a bit? The craziness is not what it used to be. Police presence or just eh, time? There is something else that is aimed at raising awareness for First Nations. And in particular... Those who were affected or those whose family members were affected, obviously, by residential schools. It's Orange Shirt Day. And Jade Elijah is at Fanshawe College. And Jade joins us right now to talk a little bit more about Orange Shirt Day. Jade, how are you? Great, how are you? Not bad. Very interested to hear more about orange shirts because there are high schools in the area that have orange shirts that are being worn today at Fanshawe. I'm I'm imagining you are in an orange shirt right now. Can you look down? Orange shirt? Yes, and a ribbon. And a ribbon. Okay, so an orange shirt and an orange ribbon. Let (laughs) us know what is happening today or what you're trying to draw attention to by wearing orange shirts and orange ribbons. 
Um, initially, it all started with the story of Phyllis Webstead sharing her story in 2003 about her first day when she was, like, taken away to residential school. And so when did you personally find out about that story? Um, I found about that story, like, at a really young age, like, ever since I was in elementary school. I remember, like, always, like, doing things to commemorate about what happened. Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people. And this is something that certainly has had a lot of attention drawn to it. Gord Downey did a lot of work to really make us know more about residential schools before he passed away. When we look at wearing orange shirts, if someone were to walk by and say, hey, you guys are all wearing orange shirts, how come you're doing that? What are you going to tell them? Um, I just tell them... Um, that this is just one story of, like, 15,000 children, 150,000 children that um, who have experienced horrific, like, traumas from this. And this is just all to commemorate and honor, like, everything that happened. Do you the ever th- lives that were stolen. Do you ever think back about being a child in those days, at that age, and, and what that must, must have been like to, to be taken away from your family, to be put in a school, and, and to experience what they had to experience? No, like, I could never imagine how that would be, because, like, like they must have been put through so much hurt ever since they were, like, that's like a little kid getting, like, abused, like, sexually and emotionally, and that's, like, Imagine, like, your children or, like, someone in your family, like, that happened to them. Like, you just can't, like, you never want to even imagine that. And yet, this was going on, like you say, by the thousands. What do you hope people take away from a day like today? Just to have more respect and to, for everyone to wear orange shirt, like, no matter what race you are, no matter, like, who you are. It's an amazing message. I hope that everybody wears orange shirts throughout the day today, and I hope that this becomes something that each and every year, when someone says orange shirt day, you reach into the closet, you grab that orange shirt, and you put it on. Thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, thank you. Have a great day. Jade Elijah from Fanshawe College. Orange shirt day has been happening for a while, but the message is starting to get out there, maybe to a greater degree, and that's never a bad thing. Growing up, chances are you've had a pet. Maybe not, but at some point in your life, you may have had a pet. And pets are fantastic for so many different reasons. No, I'm not getting a dog. But I love dogs. However, we need to pay as close attention to pet behavior as we can. Because they're not tapping you on the face in the morning in order to say... My shoulder hurts. I've got a headache. I don't know. Can pets get migraines and things? I'm not sure. But they can experience pain. And September is actually Pet Pain Awareness Month. And we are lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Jim Barry to talk about this right now. Dr. Barry, thanks for being here on London Live. 
Oh, you're most welcome. Thanks for inviting me, Mike. I know we're squeaking this in kind of at the end of the month, but the month is there to raise awareness. This goes on the entire year. It's not like you look around in the month of September and say, okay, we got to watch our pets this month. They could be in pain. That won't change. So what sorts of things should we be on the lookout for? Okay, well, it's, it's a great question, and, and probably from our perspective, it's the main question. So how do I how do I identify pain in my animals? So if I don't know they're sore, I don't know I need to treat or I don't know I need to modify anything. So usually what we're looking for in animals is changes in behavior. So, and really what we're talking about most of the time is chronic pain. So think pain from arthritis, pain from cancer, um, nerve-based pain like sciatic in people, those ones that just go on and on and on. So those are the things that, that are fairly subtle in animals. So animals do not complain the way we do. They don't vocalize about it. They're still going to go for the walk. Your dog is still going to go out and chase a squirrel in the park. But what you're looking for are the subtle things. So your dog is not eating as well as he used to. Your cat no longer jumps up onto the onto the counter. She kind of goes from the floor to the chair to the table to the counter. So she uses steps to get up. Um, we're looking for animals that don't sleep very well. They shift around at night. When they get up in the morning, they're stiff. They do these long stretches that kind of take forever to get them going. Um, You can be looking for things, more obvious things like um, lameness when they're walking, so shifting the weight from one leg to another. You can look for differences in muscle tone. So there's a lot of things that are fairly subtle, and a lot of times the owners pick them up. They know there's something to matter, and they know that their animal isn't quite right, but they often put it down to aging because they don't complain about it the way we do. Um, so, so quite often these dogs that are just acting older, these cats that are slowing down and acting old, they're not really old, they're, they're painful, right? So, so it, it's kind of hard sometimes. So it's, it's something where if you've got a concern, please ask your veterinarian, take them in and have them assessed. We're talking with Dr. Jim Barry. Now, sometimes animals, if they're feeling pain, will hide because they they don't want to put themselves at risk, I guess, for being attacked. I mean, it, is right. it true that in a house, I mean, an animal is still kind of worried there might be a predator coming around the corner, even though they're in a house and have, have been domesticated and, and have never had that happen? Would they still be worried about that? Yeah, one of the thoughts is is that in the background of their genetics, they are still, to some degree, wild animals. And so when you get into a situation which is threatening, whether you are actually threatened by someone or or another animal, or whether you are painful and that puts you at risk, you go into behaviors and modes that will protect you. So certainly, if you're sore and can't move around and can't defend yourself, a very obvious thing to do in the wild is to hide. And so even if you're in a house and you're comfortable and you know that nothing's going to attack you, say you're a cat who's always lived in the house, Genetics kick in, and you kind of go into hiding mode. So, so that's one of the behaviors we see. I think I forgot to mention is especially with cats. When they're not feeling great, they hide. You kind of go looking for your cat who's normally on your lap, and you've got to go find them, and they're in a cupboard somewhere. There's a problem, right? So you're right. They, they, they go into back, back into genetics and say, hmm, I've got to get out of here and protect myself. Dr. Jim Barry joining us. It is Pet Pain Awareness Month, the month of September. We're almost through it, but this, again, is something that doesn't necessarily go away. It's important to look at it and see what it is to identify, which we've talked about. Now let's talk about what do we do? How do you handle it if you think, ah, my pet's kind of acting strange? 
Well, I think the the first thing to do, quite honestly, is is contact your veterinarian and 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 your veterinary support teams. That's the technicians as well. They're all involved because um, the assessment of pain in animals is usually the veterinarian's job, and they will talk to you about what your animal is doing, what they're not doing, how they're moving, how they may be slowing down. So they'll look at at the history. And then it's a physical examination. We can find a lot on just a hands-on physical examination, looking for sore points, looking for muscle trigger points, looking for differences in muscle volume one side to another, watching your animal move. There may be other tests that are done, such as x-rays to look for osteoarthritis or bone cancer, things like that. But at that point, when you've got a diagnosis, then the treatment comes down to what the pain is, how chronic it is, what the owner can do, and what the animal can tolerate. So we have medications. We certainly have anti-inflammatory pain medications, kind of like Celebrex for people, just very, very high-level pain control drugs. We have neuropathic drugs like gabapentin, uh, all kinds of things like that. Then we also have physical modalities. So think massage, um, chiropractic, acupuncture, laser treatment, uh, range of motion exercises. Sort of like if you go to a physiotherapist, there are actually... I can't use the term physiotherapy, but rehab specialists for animals to, to get them back up. So pain control and pain treatment in animals usually involves a whole host of different treatment options, and it just depends on what's going to work for the animal and what's going to work for the owner, right? Not everybody can come to the clinic once a week for acupuncture, but most people can get a pill into the animal. So wow. it just depends. We, we, we modify and... and uh, and it's, you know, especially when you're dealing with chronic pain, it changes over time. It's not a stable, a stable problem. And so as the disease changes, let's say as the osteoarthritis gets worse, the pain changes, then we may need to change treatment. So you just have to kind of keep an, an open dialogue with your veterinary team about what's going on, how things are changing. Quite often it's just a phone call. You know, this is what's going on. Can I change my meds? Do I up them? Do I decrease them? So it doesn't have to be in the office all the time, it, but it has to be quite dynamic and, and fairly fluid. Dr. Jim Barry joining us. Dr. Barry, just as a final question, one thing we were actually talking about recently on London Live was the amount of edibles animals are getting into. And sure, sometimes they'll eat a gummy bear that falls on the floor that may contain marijuana or, or cannabis yeah. or CBD or something like that. But sometimes it's people saying, hey, this marijuana works for me. You seem to be in pain. I bet it'll work for you. Or even like an ibuprofen <laughs> or acetaminophen or something like that. How, how dangerous is that? If you're trying to prescribe for your pet? I would really caution people to, to call your veterinarian and ask. So, so the obvious one, if I just look at straight toxicities, um, acetaminophen for most dogs is safe at the right dose. For every cat out there, a single dose of acetaminophen is usually deadly. Like one pill, your cat is essentially dead. Um, if I look at things, so, you know, obviously we need to be very careful. If I look at things like CBD, which, of course, is the big issue in Canada right now, um, we do know that CBD is relatively safe. It's, it's not likely to cause any major issues. THC, on the other hand, so the active part of marijuana that, that gives us a high for people, dogs are incredibly sensitive to it, and cats seem to be as well. So... We need to be very careful if you're home dosing on CBD and THC products that we don't overdose the dog. And we do see, unfortunately, a lot of overdoses. Many of them are accidental, but a lot of them are, I don't want to use the word intentional, but a lot of times the animals have been given the meds because it worked for the owner. And they're giving too high of a dose or they're giving too high of a THC dose. 
part of the problem we have as veterinarians is there is not a lot of data out yet on dogs and cats for what the proper dose is, how much CBD to THC can be used, and actually what the indications are. So we know there are pain receptors that involve CBD in animals. They're, they're very active, so it makes, it makes sense. There's a role there. What we need is a lot more research to tell us exactly when is CBD useful, what the dose is, what are the chronic uh, uses, and, and are there going to be problems with chronic use? Are we going to have to increase or decrease the dose? Does it affect the liver? We just don't really know that stuff yet. So the advice right now is that please, please <laughs> talk to your veterinarian. We're, we're stuck a little bit because veterinarians have not been given the right to prescribe human uh, CBD products to pets. So I can't send you off to your local cannabis store with a prescription to fill it with what I think is an appropriate product. We don't have that ability under the Canadian, the new Canadian cannabis laws. So I can talk to you about what you're giving your pet, but I can't really direct you. It's just a weird kind of awkward place we're in. I would still suggest that if you're using these products on your pet, talk to your vet. Be very open about it. Um, I can at least direct you on what is is not a good idea, even if I can't direct you to a product that is available. Sure. Dr. Barry, thanks so much for the time today. Oh, you're most welcome, and thank you for the questions. Dr. Jim Barry, as we talk about September being Pet Pain Awareness Month. So do be on the lookout for some of those signs. If your pet's not doing what they have been doing, maybe it's time for that old checkup. 10,000 miles, make sure that they're going okay, and if they are hiding, and that is one of those things. And... It just goes to show you, you've got to treat an animal like an animal. An animal will go and hide because they're worried a predator will come and find them. And if they're in a vulnerable state, that's not a good thing. That's why they're hiding. It's not, oh, look, the cat's way back in the closet again. Yeah, seems to really like sleeping in the closet. Uh, no, probably doesn't like sleeping in the closet. Just wants to make sure that when the predator comes and it knows it can't run away as fast as it wants to, it's going to be safe. Doesn't matter that it's in the closet. It sounds ridiculous, but as Dr. Barry points out, that's kind of in their DNA. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.